let me say too, you know, I, I try and be careful to not abuse your time. You know, I, I, I watch my watch and, and I'll probably run long this morning. I'm just saying that from the get-go on the front end. And along that line, speaking cross-purposes in a way, so I hope uh, what you come away from this morning is clear and not otherwise. Uh, I had a conversation this week in which a friend said, asked, are you teaching on the recent political scenes this Sunday? Are you speaking to that? And I said, well, no, because I'm, I'm on a relatively tight schedule with my teaching series and I've, I can't develop a Sunday on what's going on. And by that I mean the Supreme Court decision striking down the Defense of Marriage Act and effectively striking down Proposition 8 in California, which defined marriage. Uh, go figure, it was a stretch, but they defined marriage as marriage was between a man and a woman. And so that was effectively struck down in California as well. And I do, on the front end, and again on the very tail end, I do want to mention these things very briefly because they affect us. Some people think church uh, and politics are separate, and in my mind there's nothing further from the truth. Uh, All politics at the bottom is moral. It's just morality writ large. It's morality writ large for the culture. You know, it's our SOPs, and that all comes down to morality, what's right and wrong. That's really what we're saying. I can think of no subject more profoundly moral than marriage. And what is marriage? And what's God's idea of marriage? And, And when we turn away from something so substantial as God's idea of marriage, we are in dangerous waters indeed. And for us as people of faith to recognize that, and, and come to grips with that and say, Lord, what does that look like for us as we continue to be your representatives in our time and our place? That's absolutely appropriate. And if the church, if we're not talking about that here, where are we getting our marching orders? Who better than people of faith, people who read their Bibles, who say we belong to the living God who created family, who better than Christians to be able to speak to each other about this and as well as trying to continue to be a witness to the world about what God's good plan is. So, I think you probably know if you've been here more than two Sundays, we don't believe there's a separation between politics and religion or morality. They actually intertwine all the time. You can't get away from that. Those were losses, and that's significant. I was in my Bible this morning, Proverbs 14. just happens to be where I'm reading, Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people. I'm afraid those are the waters we find ourselves in today and it's unlikely to be turned around anytime soon. I do want to say on a positive note, and I just read this this morning online, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals put a hold on over a million dollars a day penalty against Hobby Lobby and Mardell Books that would have started tomorrow. And the court said that because they believe Hobby Lobby will in all likelihood win their lawsuit against the federal court against Obamacare that would otherwise require them to provide medications to employees that they believe infringe on their conscience and actually are abortifacients towards pregnant women. So that's a huge thing I've not seen elsewhere, but that was in the, the news this morning. So that's a good thing. So it's not as if it's all losses. It's not as if it's all wins, certainly. But I would say this, uh, Christians are deeply invested in this country. We have been since its inception. Uh, and it might be easy to fall into a hand-wringing mentality when it looks like you know, we're losing everything. But God is still God. God's not quit being God. And the Scriptures say that none of His purposes can be thwarted. 
And the Scripture says that He's working all things together after the counsels of His own will. And we can count on that today and tomorrow just as much as we did last week, last month, last year. None of that's changed. So I think we need to encourage ourselves that God's still in control. We're still His representatives. We want to be on board with what He's doing. We want to encourage politicians and each other in the ways we can. But ultimately, our hope is not in Supreme Courts. It's not in senators and representatives. Our hope is in God. And God's written the end of the story. And it's not that we win. It's that He wins. And we get to be a part of that. But no hand-wringing needed. God's firmly in control. We certainly need to be on our knees and praying for God to be at work in us and through us. And, and frankly, just to call our nation back to repentance and humility. We can't raise our fist against God in redefining marriage and family, which is supposed to represent the Trinity itself and think that we're okay with God. That's just not going to wash. So we need to be humble. We need to confess the sins of the nation together, just as Daniel did in Israel. little different dynamics, but, but uh, no hand-wringing needed. God's firmly in control. We need to remember that and get on about the business that He's called us to, which is primarily worshiping Him and proclaiming the Gospel to others. That's the message that ultimately saves, not capitalism, not the United States. Christ saves. That's what we're about. Okay. Uh, Richard John Newhouse, last thing on that. Uh, despair is still a sin and hope is still a virtue. So that's where we're going. Uh, immigration, uh, closer to things at hand in the text, will be in Colossians this morning. Immigration was also much in the news this week because the Senate passed immigration reform. That's not a bill yet, obviously. It would have a long way to go. Uh, passed immigration reform. So that's much in the news. And, you know, whatever legislation does or doesn't do, uh, if you look in this setting right here, you don't have to look any further, you know that we are a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of immigrants. So I know based on who's here this morning, Ireland, England, Norway, Sweden, France, Italy, Spain, Germany, Africa, Asia, Central and South America, at least. There's probably a few more that I've missed. We are a nation of immigrants. And that means that either we, for some of us, maybe this morning, depending on who's here, either we or our ancestors, at some point in the past, they broke with their old life. They left their old country. They left their families, their histories, their past, their stories. They left them behind. And they got on, for most of them, probably ships, and maybe more recently planes, they left who and what they were. They left the people they had sprung from. They left the fatherland and they became immigrants because they were headed to a new place, to a new country, to establish a new identity. And in order to do that, they had to leave some things behind to embrace new. When immigrants came to the States, we quit being French or German or Italian or Spanish or whatever because now we became Americans. See, there's a change of identity there. And with that change of identity based on where we're at, there's sort of a new sense of operating procedures. We leave some practices behind to embrace new practices. We leave some values behind to embrace new values. And that's sort of the scenario Paul sets up for us in Colossians 3. We'll be in verses 1-11 through 11 this morning. And sort of to, to highlight where he's going with that, I'd encourage us to think or to live like immigrants. 
to think and to live like immigrants, that there's this very intentional leaving some things behind to set our eyes on something and someplace ahead so that our present reality reflects the fact that we're leaving something behind and embracing something new. And that's what Paul calls us to in Colossians 3. We're verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read from the ESV. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and the if is not a question, it's a statement. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Because or for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death therefore, because those things are true, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. We would say what attached to your patronage, the things that you brought with you, your fatherland. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, those sins come between you and God. They displace God. Verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must also put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another because you have put off old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. If you pick this up as we read through these verses, Paul is all about our identity with or in Christ. So Paul says we're raised with Christ, we're hidden with Christ, we will be, future tense, revealed with Christ. Verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. Verse 3, you've died. And, present tense, your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ who's your life appears, you'll appear with Him. And verse 9, you've put off the old with its practices, you've put on the new self. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said you've been buried with Christ. In verse 13, he says you've been made alive with Christ. Paul's point, and the theme we're addressing this morning is very, very broad, and it's very foundational to Christian living. And so this is a theme repeated throughout. I think your study sheet will have some other references in Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and 1 Peter 4. This is a pervasive theme throughout the New Testament. And you and I cannot live as immigrants, as those who are leaving old sinful things behind to embrace new, if we don't get what Paul's talking about, that our life now as Christians, it's not just that we follow Christ, it's not that we try and live a different way, it's that our life is in and with Christ. We are not the people we were before. You know, if you think of John 3 and Jesus' discussion there with Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, if you don't have a new birth, you will never see the kingdom of God. You're not part of God's heaven, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God apart from new birth. You can't get there. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul 
sort of puts that in a nutshell when he says, we're new creations. The old things have passed away. All things are made new. That's what Paul's getting at here. Christians are new people. We've got a new father. We've got a new life. It didn't exist before our conversion. And it's only that new identity that enables us to live and walk free from old sinful pasts. We talked on Father's Day a little bit about we're like our dads. You can't get away from that. Good, bad, or ugly. But in this sense, Paul wants us to know, no, we've got a new patronage. We have a new source. And because we have a new life in Christ, that's why we can live free and holy. That's why we can live as immigrants and put old things behind us. Because we are a new person. In verse 3, he puts it in this language. He says, your life is hidden with Christ. Your life today is hidden with Christ. I love this imagery. You know, if you go back to the fall, Genesis 3, when God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve hear Him, what do they do? They run and hide. And since no man has ever seen the Father, we assume that this was the second member of the Trinity before He was incarnate and took on our humanity and became Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. Hiding from Him. But in redemption, we're now hidden in the One we were trying to hide from. I love that. He says you can't get away. Not only can you not hide from Me, but I'm going to hide you inside Me. I love this. Or in the Old Testament, one of the threats God made in His conditional covenant with Israel, He told them, look guys, if you're not doing things my way, I'll hide Myself from you. You're going to look for Me and I'm not going to be available. But here, that same God says to us, I'm going to take you and I'm going to hide you inside Me. You'll never get away. You'll be inside Me. There's no hiding left. You can't hide from God if you want to. So now we're hidden in Christ. Our life is all tied up in Christ. He's our life. He's in us. We're in Him. You know, if you think about this too in the context of Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 27 is one of my favorite Psalms. You know, David says, there's just one thing, Lord, that I really want. I just want to live in Your house forever and I'll, I'll meditate on You and Your things. And he says in that Psalm, in the day of trouble, You'll hide me. We're hidden in Christ today, right now. Or if you think of Psalm 32.7 or Psalm 119.114, the psalmist says, God, You are my hiding place. Well, that's true of us today in ways they could not have imagined. We are hidden today in Christ. Now, I think one of the reasons Paul's using this hidden language is because if we look at each other or the world looks at us, they might say, not seeing much of Christ either in you or Christ personally. Christ is in heaven. We don't see Jesus physically today. And the world doesn't. And someone might look at us and say, and I don't see much of Jesus in you either, Mike. And You know, guilty as charged. So Paul says there's this hidden quality to our life in Christ. It's not necessarily obvious all the time. But, he says, there will come a day when our union with Christ will be undeniable. Because though we're hidden with Him now, one day Jesus Himself will be revealed, right? He promised, I'm going to come back to the earth. And everyone will see Me. Every eye will see Me. 
And He won't come as the humble carpenter. He'll be the glorious reigning ruling King, right? His eyes shine like the sun. His hair white as wool. Feet are shining strapped with gold. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how He comes back. Revealed in His glory. Well, Paul says when Jesus comes back and He's revealed, you also, you as a Christian, you'll be revealed with Him then. Our full glorious selves, which are hard to see, hidden now, they'll be fully revealed when Jesus comes back. So Paul wants us to know our life is all tied up in Christ. It's in Christ, it's with Christ. Christ is hidden now. The reality of our union with Him is hidden now. Christ will be revealed in the future, manifested gloriously. When that happens, we will be gloriously manifested and made revealed as who we are in Christ at that point too. So hidden in Christ now, but revealed in Christ later. Because that's true, Paul says in verse 1, we're to seek the things that are above. This goes back to the thought of being an immigrant. My grandparents immigrated from Ireland. And when they left Ireland, I have no doubt they were thinking about friends and family they might not see again. And thinking about places and times that they remembered and been part of their life. But you know, more than looking behind, once you get on that ship, you start looking forward. Because you're leaving something behind. You're leaving an old life behind. Or you wouldn't be on that ship. And so you start thinking about and anticipating the place you're going. You start living forward. Where am I going? What's my home? What will that look like? What does that mean for me? And that's what Paul's calling us to do here. Heaven is our home. Our life is in and with Christ. So Paul says like an immigrant, realize you're going to a far country. And set your eyes, your gaze, your thoughts, your affections on the place you're going. Forget what you've left behind and value what you're heading towards. And live by the values that describe heaven. Where Christ is. So live and look forward. Not based on the path. We're leaving old things behind. We're embracing new ones. So what are the things above? He says live for, look for, live for the things above. You guys that have your own list, briefly I'd say things like this. Live for the glory of God. You know, Christians, I think we say this glibly when I think we don't mean it. But that's a real call. You know, Jesus is in glory today. And if you think of heaven, you know, the, the emerald throne and the sea of glass and the, the fire of the Spirit and the golden crowns being thrown before Christ as people, when they see Him revealed, they, they just bow down and worship. You know, if we seek the things above, we're seeking to worship Christ. We're seeking to give Him His due. And I don't mean just glibly in this religious talk that we say to each other. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be seeking, the glory of God. Honoring Christ. The fruits of the Spirit. You know, Jesus' life in us is by His Spirit today. And His Spirit is in us to, to reproduce the life of Christ Himself. So if we set our mind on things above, Christ specifically, the fruits of the Spirit should be one of those things that we're setting our mind on. Guys, an acid test for whether or not we're living for heaven, living forward like immigrants, just read Galatians 5. And just tick off where you see yourself. So there's the fruits of the Spirit. 
And then there's the deeds of the flesh. That's a convicting list for me. If you say, Mike, are you setting your mind on things above? Are you pursuing the things where Christ is? Just go through the list. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is, does my life look like that? If it doesn't, I'm probably not setting my eyes on things above. You know, you get into the list of the deeds of the flesh are obvious. You know, anger, wrath, clamoring, immorality, drunkenness, you name it. It's like, check, check, check. This is not hard. So one of the ways we set our affection, our mind on things above is, Lord, we want, it, we want the, the life of Christ to be reproduced in us. And that's why His Spirit's in us, to reproduce Christ in us. So am I walking by the fruits of the Spirit? Do I see that in my life? That's what we should be doing. Proclamation of the Gospel. You know, we're on earth as an, amb- an ambassador. And heaven today is making an appeal on the earth, you know, repent. God's calling on all men everywhere to repent and to believe in His Son, in Jesus. So if we're about the things above, one of those things is we're simply making Christ known to others. We're communicating the Gospel. That's another acid test. Are we just sharing our faith with others as we have ability to do so? If we're not, we're probably not setting our mind on the things above. Fellowship of the saints, the truth of the Word. Is that where our mind is? Is that what we're about? Those are the things above. There's an old and I think trite saying that says a person is so heavenly minded he's no earthly good. Have you heard this? I think that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. On two levels. I have never met this person. And I don't think they exist. Now, before, or in the future. I don't think they exist. The second thing is, Paul says it's precisely the person who has their mind and their affection set on heaven that God can most fully use on the earth. If our eyes are just on the earth, if we're living like everybody around us, non-immigrants back in the fatherland, we're of no good to the people around us. It's a person whose mind and affections are set on Christ and the things above that God can actually fully use on the earth. So that's what we want to do. We're joined with Christ. Our life is in Him. We want to say goodbye to old things. Embrace the new, the things above. We want to seek God's glory in all of that. Now, Paul gets down to brass tacks in verses 5-9. through And if you remember, back in chapter 2, We said these Jewish heretics were trying to tell the Colossians there were all these religious do's and don'ts they needed to be concerned with. You know, dietary laws and days to observe or not observe. And Paul said, don't worry about those things. Not an issue. Chapter 3, though, he switches gears dramatically and he says, now there are issues. There are things that you've got to deal with. And it's in the language of put off, put to death, put away. And then he gets down to brass tacks and real sin. So verse 5 he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he says is idolatry. Now, in my mind, when I read through this list, these are the big ones. These are the obvious ones. Sexual immorality, that's not a hard one. I am or I'm not. You know, I'm living in sin or I'm not. That's an easy one. Uh, impurity and passion, most of these probably have to do with sexual immorality. So they're sort of the big ones. They're the easy ones to say, that's wrong. I shouldn't do that. Now having said that, you know, if the surveys are accurate at all, 
uh, professing Christians today sleep with each other as often before marriage as non-professing Christians. You know, Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, sexual immorality shouldn't even be named among you. Shouldn't even be a thought about that. But in the professing church today, that simply is not the case. But these should be e- these are softballs. Paul's like that's sin. You know that. Today we say we're not even sure that's sin. That's sin. Paul says you need to put to death those things. Verse five. Verse seven. He says you too once walked in these things when you were living in them. What, whatever our past is, whatever our sins are, Paul describes sort of the worst of the worst, and he says you were some of those too. You know, this is the same language as 1 Corinthians 6, I think it's verse 11, and Ephesians 5. Those are the kind of people God reached down and saved. Immoral people like us. Sinful people like us. That's the whole deal. So that was true of us too. That wasn't true of somebody else and not me. That was us as well. Verse 8, but now you must put these all away. Now see, I'm thinking if I'm in the early church, and Paul has said the obvious sexual sins, and I say, nope, missed me on every one of them. Not me. Paul says, well, there's another list. It's anger. It's wrath. It's malice. It's slander. It's obscene talk. Now, I know, I know that I'm not the only one here whose sinful nature sins big time in the arena of anger. You know, I read this and I'm like, yep, that's me. That was the first... You know the time that I really knew I was a sinner as a Christian? Deficient. I read Galatians 5 and it said, outbursts of anger were from my sinful disposition. It was like, oh, oh, got me there. You know, that's me, yeah. This list, I might hear the big ones and think I'm not in there, but I get here and I say, well, this probably covers the rest of us. So anger and wrath, you know, how often do we sort of brood on and simmer on the hurt someone else did to us. And that turns into malice. It turns into an attitude that we wish harm on someone else. And, and by the way, this probably happens no more easily than the, in the political arena. Somebody voted the way I didn't want them to. Someone passed legislation I didn't want them to. They're the enemy. And now I have malice towards them. This is not Christian. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you and abuse you. Anger and malice are sins. We're not to entertain. How about slander? Kathy and I had a conversation, I think just yesterday, in which she was recounting a situation that I had been in. And on three different points, her statement of fact were absolutely wrong because the person who told her got it wrong. You know, sinning with our mouth is one of the easiest ways we sin. Either because we're unguarded and we say things we shouldn't, or because we communicate false information because we don't know it to be true. It's so easy to sin. Kathy was just restating what she'd heard, but it was all wrong. I said, well, no, no, no. This is what happened. This is what was said. This is what was done. We really have to be careful about how we speak about each other. Are we speaking ill of each other? We've had a number of occasions to have conversations just about people who are having challenges and struggles in life. And our old family table rule came to mind again. If we talk about someone, we've got to pray for them. You know, when we do that, it, it has a way of settling the dust on temptation for anger or bitterness or malice. So if we check off the big sins and say, nope, that's not me, I'm okay, we get to these and I say, well, that covers the rest of us. 
our words and our attitudes. And last there, verse 9, he says, don't lie to one another. At the end of verse 9, this is the key to any success in putting sin behind us. Immigrants leaving the sin of the past behind. He says, because you've put off the old self with its practices. We've put off the old self with its practices. You know, when you talk to people about uh, issues in life, could be creation, creation of the earth, uh, or, I don't know, some other issue that may be hard to grasp. I'm convinced that one of the most difficult of all doctrines and theologies in the Bible to obey in the way of faith, you know, the just live by faith, Christians are called to live by faith. And that means we believe what God said is true. We trust what He said is true and we act on it. And I've come to believe that there's no more challenging area in any of our lives to live by faith than in this arena of putting away sin. Paul's premise for saying put those things to death, put them behind you, is based on our union with Christ. Paul is not calling sinners to live better lives. He's calling saints to live consistent with their new life. For that to work, I have to actually believe that I died with Christ. That my sinful nature has no power to make me sin. That the temptations I face don't have to overcome me. This is where that goes. To the degree that I'm walking free of my sin, I'm walking by faith. If we look at our life and say, I've got these chronic areas of sin I'm just not getting free of. I've got these ways of dealing with life that were common before I became a Christian and I'm still doing the same thing. I say, in that area, we don't have faith. We're not walking by faith because we don't get our reality that that old thing is dead. That old sinful life can't control me. So the secret to the successful Christian life of putting sin behind, of living like an immigrant, it's to believe that I died with Christ, I was buried with Christ, and I live resurrection life in Christ. It requires faith. So when Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin, he's saying, add up the math, do it, and you'll see this is the conclusion. You died and your life is now in Christ. That's the appeal to live a holy life, to put sin behind us. It requires faith in what Paul says is true of us. Our old sinful selves are no more. They've been crucified in Christ. They're still attached to this flesh and blood body. But the secret of a successful life is faith in the reality that we died with Christ and we have resurrection life in Christ today. Romans 6-8, through Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4 are those key passages too. So Paul says, put those things behind you. That's real sin. It's inconsistent with your calling in Christ. Put those things behind you. He also says in verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. In the Greek, the term wrath there is orge, which means violent passion. Our English word, we say orgy. And in our use, it's always attached to sexual sin. But in the Greek, it means overflowing passion. could be about a number of things. 
Paul says these sins that we're to leave behind will elicit the orge, the overflowing passions of an omnipotent God against these sins. I don't want to be there for that. This is like the angels going into the city of Sodom and telling Lot. Lot didn't look very Christ-like. You read the story, you know that. But yet the New Testament says he was righteous. Lot was saved. Didn't make a lot of good decisions, but he was in Christ. He was righteous. He was saved. But the angels go there and they say to Lot, you must flee this city. Why? Because God's wrath is going to be poured out on it. In fiery indignation. You want to separate yourself from the things and the place God is pouring His wrath on. Now in saying this, Paul is not suggesting, and neither am I, that Christians remain subject to the wrath of God for our sins. Our sins were atoned for by Christ on the cross. He's made that clear in chapter 2. But the thinking goes something like this. Why would we live a life that looks like the lives of the people who are subject to God's wrath? Why would we live life as if we remained enemies of God? Why would we be doing the things that God our Father hates that elicit His wrath? So I don't think Paul's trying to scare Christians in the sense of do this or else. I think what he's getting at is This lifestyle, these sins, are the things that draw God's overflowing, passionate judgment. Why would we be attached to these things? Why would we be doing these things? It is so absolutely contrary to the life we're called to. This is a good reminder for me. You know that when I'm tempted to sin, these sins, they draw my Father's wrath. These sins are what what elicited my Father's wrath against Jesus, my Savior, on the cross. So when I choose to continue refusing to put those sins behind me, it's as if I'm minimizing Jesus' death on my behalf. It's as if I'm minimizing the things my Father hates that draw His wrath and His anger and His indignation. I don't want to do that. I want to love my dad. I want to honor my Savior. So Paul says, this kind of lifestyle is inconsistent. You can't get there. So put those things behind. And last, in verse 11, uh, Paul says all the past distinctions are gone. You know, whatever country you or your parents hailed from, we leave those identities behind to become Americans. We come into the salad that is the United States, however it's defined. We lose those old identities. We gain new ones. We're now Americans. Well, Paul says as Christians, we're supposed to do the same thing too. We're supposed to forget the things that defined us before Christ because in Christ, all things are new and we have a common heritage now. So he says there, uh, there's no more Greeks and Jews. And what he's doing is he's appealing, he's he's reminding them of the, the differentiation that was easily made in their day. So are you a Jew or a Gentile? Doesn't matter anymore, he says. Are you circumcised or uncircumcised? Are you under the covenant or not? Are you a barbarian or a Scythian? If you were Greek, the rest of the world was barbarians. If you were Jewish, the rest of that world was barbarian. 
It was easy for them to parse each other up. We, we today might say, are we black or white? Asian or Spanish? Italian or this or that? Paul says it doesn't matter. All those former distinctions tied to our old life, he says they're all gone. And this is the thing. Both our sins and Christ are the ultimate equalizers. Every one of us, no matter what our past is, our heritage, we have absolutely the same need for Christ in our sin. We're all sinners. And we all have equal access to Christ in the Gospel. And having come to believe in Christ, we have the same standing and value before God our Father because we have the same life of Christ in us. Now in this setting, I think Paul brings us up because he's undercutting the Jewish heretics who are trying to say, hey, we're Jews. We have a leg up on you guys. We know some things you don't know. We're closer to God than you are. So you need to listen to us. Paul says, well, you know what? Those old distinctions, they don't matter anymore. They're gone. But that's true for us today too. So whether it's the proclamation of the Gospel or whether it's relationships within the body of Christ, Paul says there's no distinction. The old distinctions based on human patronage, they're gone. We have a new Heavenly Father. We share a common Savior. We have the same standing before Christ and before God. All those old things are done away. Paul says, uh, my words, my take, live like an immigrant. See that old sinful self as a life that we left on the shores far behind us. It doesn't define us anymore. You know, whatever that looked like, good, bad, or ugly, that's old, that's behind us, that's past. We're setting our eyes on the place we're going to. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that's our home. So we're looking forward to that. We're making plans for that new life. All of that's true because we're in Christ. So, Paul's saying, put to death the things that are real sins in us. Now, as an afterword, and tying back just to the political times we're living in today, about 150 years ago, prejudice and slavery and the Civil War were really were tearing this country apart. When Abraham Lincoln was in politics and came into his presidency, and uh, in light of the divisions and the deaths and you know similar things you see today, divisions in the country today, I love Lincoln's words in his second inaugural speech. And I think they're appropriate for us today. And, and a helpful mindset. If you think of the, the milieu, the period, the setting when Lincoln spoke these words, short address too, by the way, uh, the death toll in the Civil War was greater than any war in our history. Uh, the death toll was staggering. The division in the country was, I think by our standards, I don't think we can get a hold of that. It was so, so different than anything we know political today. But Lincoln talked about that. And he talked about the sins. He talked about the, the, the slave receiving lashes and the sword drawing equal blood, as it were, through the war. But as he looked forward... And the war wasn't over at this point. It was winding down, but certainly not over. As he looked forward, deep divisions in the country. He said, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in. I think that's a great reminder for us today. 
all things political with malice towards none. That's a good reminder. No hatred, no malice. That's straight out of Colossians 3, by the way. No malice. Praying for those that disagree with us. Praying for God's mercy on this nation. Charity for all. Firmness in the right. We're still here and God's still at work. And He's still at work through us. And we should still be holding to that. God, how do you want to use us today? You know, we're going into the 4th of July celebration this week. And we still have so much to be thankful for for the country that we live in today. We have so much to be thankful for still. On the flip side, we have so much to pray about. And certainly we are leaving our roots. You know, it was decades ago that Billy Graham warned that the United States couldn't escape judgment if Sodom and Gomorrah couldn't. That, that we were looking more and more like them. We certainly have much to pray about and pray for. But back to the citizenship thing related to the way we interact in this time. We are not first and foremost Americans. That's not our first calling. We are Christians. And as Christians, we are ambassadors of heaven. And Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Now when we get a hold of Philippians 3 or Colossians 3, we are the best citizens possible of this or any country. But it's reminding ourselves we are first and foremost citizens of heaven and ambassadors on earth for Christ that makes us the very best citizens we can be here and now. And I think Lincoln's words, malice towards none, charity for all, that's God's call to us as His ambassadors. That's a great word to us today. At another time of tumult and division and political strife and the country being torn. So, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Think about that this week. Live like an immigrant. We're putting old things behind us. We're setting our eyes on where we're going, our new home. We're setting our affections on those things that are above. And, and really, being the best representatives for Christ here we can. That's, it's serious business. Father, we thank You that our hope rests in nothing less than You, Your promises and Your Son, the work of Your Spirit. God, would You, would you enlarge Your work in us? Would You help us to grasp by the hands of faith the truth that as those in Christ, old things are gone, new things have come. Would you help us to put to death, put off, and put away the sins that were characteristic of us, Lord, as unbelievers, and would you enlarge the life of your Son within us? God, we pray and we beseech your mercy and your grace on this country and those in it. And Father, we pray that You would grant, as Paul said in Acts, we pray that You would grant repentance that leads to life here and now in our day and age as You have in times past. And Father, we set our hope on You. And we say with John, and we say with Paul, Lord, we say with the early church, whether times are good or bad, we say, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.